This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. We began the week learning that a recent COVID outbreak at a Burlington long-term care home had turned deadly. A resident there had succumbed to the Delta variant while the other residents and two staff members caught it were said to have had mild symptoms. The COVID vaccination rate at Tansley Woods is very high among residents, with all but one having received both doses. But when the outbreak began, the vaccination rate was much lower among the PSWs, with 86% having received a shot, 52% fully vaccinated. The premiers encouraged PSWs to get vaccinated if they haven't already, but he also said he would not make it mandatory. Libby spoke about the Tansley Woods outbreak with the Zoomer squad on Monday. David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media, along with special guest panelist Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, senior fellow at Monk School of Global Affairs, and the author of seven books. Well, it is one of those things that I think if you went out and you asked Canadians whether or not people who were going into long-term care facilities, particularly workers, should be vaccinated or be required to be vaccinated, I don't think you'd have a hard time finding the vast majority of Canadians agreeing with that. Uh, so I understand that you know the Premier's trying to make it work on a voluntary basis, but at some point, if he decided to go uh, a little bit more directly at this problem by making it mandatory, uh, there wouldn't be a lot of pushback. David? Well, we don't have to look around the world for places. I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We forget whether it was New Brunswick or Nova Scotia that policy was no jab, no job. Uh, you had to be vaccinated if you were going to work in a long-term care home. I have no way of understanding uh, the Premier's hesitancy on this. If you make it a condition of it being employed inside the home, I understand if you don't want to compel people to get vaccinated as part of their decisions about their life, but you certainly could make it condition, you know, employment in the home is conditional upon being uh, protected, being vaccinated. Is it possible? I mean, there's a shortage of LTC workers, PSWs anyway. Is it, is it just Daryl because they're afraid that they'll lose people? Well, you know, I haven't done a survey of the long-term care workers, and I actually don't know how many of them have actually not been vaccinated. I mean, those would be some interesting statistics to get a hold of. But, yeah, I'm sure all of these things are, are part of the, the conversation about why or why not having people uh, um, uh, required to, uh, uh, to, be, to be vaccinated in order to go into those facilities. The number is in the 80% range, uh, and I think that's just for one shot. At this particular home, the number was 86%, and all but one resident was vaccinated. We don't know if that's the resident who passed away. So, you know, I think it's pretty clear to me that this population we know is is vulnerable because the one thing that everybody's been touting, David, is that, okay, um, the vaccination rate is great. And even if you get it, you, it won't be serious. But, you know, there's nothing more serious than dying. 
Well, for sure, and I think it would be it'll be important to know whether that uh, person that uh, tragically passed away was or was not vaccinated. There is some uh, very early evidence that a full course of vaccines um, does protect uh, against the Delta variant in terms of the seriousness of it. If you do get it, there's some early indications. I was just reading up on this this morning that from Israel that the they're they're of two minds. On the one hand, they're saying, well, if you get vaccinated, you're only going to be uh, stricken with the Delta in a mild form. They're waiting for more evidence on that. So it's not necessarily conclusive yet. But clearly, if you're not vaccinated at all, or if you're allowing people to come in who are not vaccinated, you're significantly increasing the risk. So, uh, you know, if you don't have to do that, why would you why would you do that? You know, the other question that this begs is is what to do in workplaces. And I'm thinking that employers are kind of between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, uh, they're, they're vulnerable to certain legal challenges if they make it mandatory. And on the other hand, they're required to provide a safe workplace. Yeah, they are. But what, what ends up happening is that your customers, if you're in a business situation, will start responding. Um, and uh, uh, and the way that they'll respond is if they feel unsafe in your establishment, they won't come in. So you know the the uh, uh, at that point, then we have start having some interesting conversations about the difference between rights and uh, and obligations, and uh, particularly when it comes to uh, to people in the workplace, you know your coworkers, your your customers, people that you're going to be coming into contact with. And uh, I think that uh, one of the obligations that they will have is that you be safe. So if somebody, you know, obstinately chooses not to be safe, well, then that becomes a very interesting test case. We'll see where it goes. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and Senior Fellow, Monk School of Global Affairs, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. It's unprecedented in Canada's Parliament. The governing Trudeau Liberals have taken the Speaker of the House of Commons, a fellow Liberal, to court over a dispute about disclosing documents about the firing of two scientists at Canada's highest security lab in Winnipeg. Anthony Rodas indicated his intention to ask the federal court to strike down the government's bid to prevent members of Parliament from accessing the documents in question, which would detail why they were fired. A Globe and Mail report says the cause of their firing is related to the transfer of some of Canada's intellectual property to China. And whatever may have been taken reportedly went to that lab in Wuhan, the one at the center of the lab leak theory that is now being investigated seriously. To discuss the development, Libby was joined by Dr. Stephanie Carvin, national security expert and assistant professor of international affairs at Carleton University, Dr. Philippe Lagasse. Associate Professor of International Affairs and the Barton Chair at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and Mel Cap, former clerk of the Privy Council and distinguished fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, University of Toronto. I think the uh, problem here is that the uh, Speaker of the House of Commons is getting bad legal advice from his law clerk. Uh, at the table. Uh, the problem here is that Parliament has already passed legislation which uh, provides for the protection of secrets against any, and here I'm going to quote from the legislation, body with the jurisdiction to com- compel the production of information, House of Commons. 
And they pass a motion which says, but give us the documents anyway. Well, is this about the rule of law, or is this about the rule of man? And Anthony Rhoda fancies himself being very important, and he is, but he can't override the law. Uh Dr. Lagasse, I mean, uh, you know, there is obviously national security at play here, but, you know, Parliament, uh, they can get information that they keep secret, that they get in camera. Uh, right. And I'm going to disagree with Mel. We usually agree on everything. Okay. Uh, but on, on this one, I, I fundamentally disagree. Uh, a statute is a statute. It's a law passed by Parliament. But parliamentary privilege is a constitutional power of the legislature. And that overrides any individual statute that uh, is in play. So the, the power to compel documents as a constitutional power of Parliament supersedes any individual statute that may uh, Parliament may have passed. So in that sense, formally speaking, uh, I'm going to agree that the, the Speaker is correct that the Houses of Parliament can, can compel this evidence. Now, that's entirely separate and distinct from the question of whether they should, right? And I think that's uh, the more substantive discussion is what practices are in place and, and customs that we have in place to ensure that any information is handled properly uh, and you don't end up in a situation where you have national security information uh, just out in public. Uh, so there I would agree uh, with your the other part of your question, which is, uh, are we talking about in-camera sessions? Are we talking about some other type of compromise like the National Security uh, and Intelligence Committee parliamentarians? So uh, I think we've got two separate issues here. Dr. Carvin, what do you think? Do you agree with either of them? <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like I'm the referee here. And, uh, you know, considering what's happening in the hockey game, so I'm not sure that's a great place to be. Um, but, the, uh, you know, I think my head is with Phil. My heart is probably with Mel Cap. Um, my view is that, you know, it comes down to this, and, and Phil actually got to this when, when he said, you know, just, just because you can do something, and, yeah, they can do something, it, it doesn't mean it's a good idea you know, the way I've tried to explain it, I guess, online is that, you know, I can hit myself in the head with a frying pan. That's totally legal. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's a good idea, right? And, I mean, there's a lot of questions here. Um, we don't have a robust national security culture. And so, you know, I would love, you know, if, if the outcome of this is somehow we, you know, find ways for national security, you know, for, for MPs to have access to classified information with the right procedures, the right processes, then that's great. But right now we don't have any of those. And, you know, when you read intelligence, you know, you can't just read intelligence and, and know everything about a situation. Intelligence has certain language. It has certain concepts. It has certain um, protections about it and, and context. And I worry that, you know, if an MP just sits down, reads it, and thinks they have a 100% clear picture of what happened, that's actually usually not the case. So, you know, no offense to Garnet Genius, but I don't think he's ever had security clearance. And I'm not sure he actually knows how to read intelligence. It would be like you or I reading an article in a medical journal and suddenly thinking we could perform open-heart surgery. It's just not going to happen. Last word to Mel Cap. Um, look, I, I think that uh, the fundamental issue here is not about the conflict between Parliament and the government. It's about national security and international relations. And, and as Stephanie just said, we need to have parliamentarians who care about international relations and who care about national security. We have far too long... Uh, taken that for granted, and it's a very, it is a fundamental role of government. Protect Canadians.
Mel Cap, former clerk of the Privy Council and distinguished fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, and doctors Stephanie Carvin and Philippe Lagasse, both of Carleton University. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsey. Coming up after the break, the appointment of Julie Payette's replacement sparks election talk. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. In what many political observers feel is another indication that there will be a federal election call soon, Justin Trudeau named Mary Simon as our 30th Governor General, the first Indigenous person to fulfill that role. A former Canadian diplomat who served as this country's ambassador to Denmark, Simon says she's committed to a calm and respectful workplace, of course a nod to overcoming the troubles of the Julie Payette era. On the negative side, she does not speak French, though she says she's committed to learning. Libby discussed the move with John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel to National Public Relations, and Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. Um, not surprising. Well, I think welcome surprise, I think, would be the best way I would uh, define my response in that um, I think it was very appropriate to appoint uh, someone with Aboriginal history and roots in the country as a way of moving us forward, because our dialogue seemed to have... It, it, it's advancing, of course, but having someone of Aboriginal descent take over as representative of the Crown in Canada, I think, is symbolically significant in many, many ways. And um, I don't think the fact that she doesn't speak French really should be an issue at this juncture. Um, she's committed to learning. That's great. Um, I think the country is wrestling with other realities right now. And being able to have someone in that role, I think, will be a very uniting, potentially uniting force for us as a nation. John? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, I must give the Prime Minister credit on this one. I think that this was a, a very, very wise, smart move. And, um, you know, just, just, just given all of the all the tragedy that's been happening in the Indigenous community, um, you know, having having the first Indigenous woman as a Governor General is uh, is uh, is a landmark decision. I think it it's getting she's getting a lot of Mary Simon is getting a lot of praise from from the Indigenous community, uh, including the um, including um, uh, the leader himself, you know, Pierre uh, uh, Bellegarde. Um, and uh, Perry Belvergard. So I think it's it's going to be a good move and, and, and a smart one. And also, you know, I think the one challenge, of course, is that she is bilingual, but but not in French. She speaks English and in Victor. Um, but but the fact that she wants to learn French, I think, is good. And I think that that you know Quebecers and those who are who are francophone will will appreciate the fact that that someone is willing to learn French is is good. And I'm sure she'll have enough staff. Um, you know, with her and, and in, in the bureaucracy as well, that will help her with uh, with any of the French issues that might might come up. Um, the, the other issue too, I think that it's symbolic is not only the, that you know, obviously she's first Indigenous Governor General, but a certain sign that we're going to get into election. I think you know, if you if you thought that the Prime Minister getting his hair cut and getting his beard shaved oh. off was a sign, uh, the fact that he got uh, he got this announcement and this. Uh, um, the governor general approved now uh, is indicative. I think one of her first major roles is going to be probably to drop the rest. 
Yeah, uh, I I would think so too. Uh, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, I I think that was a, a slam dunk that it was going to be an indigenous person. I I mean, I'm sure that I'm not the only person who predicted that. I thought only question is, it will it be a woman or a man, Bob? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not surprised at her appointment. She was a very serious candidate last time for governor general. I think she's an adult. Uh, you know, she's a diplomat. She's been chancellor of a university. She's advised both liberal and conservative governments. I spoke to both a senior liberal and a senior conservative this morning. Both said basically the same thing. She's hardworking, smart. She's experienced. She's a serious person. So I think that'll be good. I think the French issue, uh, I think she will learn to speak French. And I, I don't see that as a sort of serious handicap or impediment at, at this, uh, you know, at this time. So, uh, and, you know, she's married, she has kids, she'll move into the residence. I think the freak show era is over, and uh, I think that is good. And I think we will have adults back in charge at uh, Rideau Hall, and it's, uh, it's uh, time for that. She is a former diplomat, so uh, presumably she knows how to handle things diplomatically. And, and we can only hope if, if she can learn French the way Stephen Harper did, she'll be doing great. Absolutely. And, uh, and it, you know, she did speak some, I speak French and I listened to her this morning and she does speak some French. She clearly is not fluently bilingual, but, uh, she, uh, she, it strikes me she will have every good resource at her, uh, available, available, uh, to her to help learn French. And, uh, I'm sure she will do an excellent job at it. The Tuesday Strategy Panel. Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel to National Public Relations. Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor. And John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. This is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Just as our vaccination rates are rising and the economy's opening up and travel restrictions for Canadians are eased, We have news about a brand new variant, the Lambda, as countries around the world report an increase in cases fueled by the Delta variant. To find out more, let me talk to Dr. Carrie Bowman, a bioethicist at the U of T, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases, infection control physician at the University Health Network. We know that this variant is the dominant strain that's been in Peru, and we know that Peru has experienced a particularly hard pandemic over the last few months, and they have one of the highest, maybe the highest uh, death per capita as a result of COVID. So it is certainly concerning to know that that's the case. We don't have much data on how uh, effective the vaccine is, so what the vaccines that we're using here in Canada are against the Lambda variant. We do know that there are no cases here in Canada, and there's very few cases outside of Latin America or South America of the Lambda variant. So um, it's a little bit early to tell, and we, we, we don't yet know to what extent it's going to be a problem here in Canada. What's their vaccination situation in Peru? Um, it's, it's nowhere near as good as where we are in terms of the single or double vaccinated in Canada, United States, or UK. Um, we only know that in South America there's predominantly used um, the Sinovac vaccine as opposed to the Pfizer or Moderna or AstraZeneca being used here. And they do know that there is some degree of efficacy against this new variant, but perhaps reduced compared to the other variants. Uh, Dr. Bowman, how worrying is this for you? Well, 
you know, for me personally, it actually is in the strange way that I was scheduled to, I work in uh, the Amazon and I was scheduled to go to the Peruvian Amazon uh, by late August or September. Uh, I don't think I can do that um, because there's a lot of questions related to this variant. So, you know, and the question would be, you wouldn't want to get all the way there and then find out that at a later stage, because it's not yet a variant of concern, it's or it's a variant of concern, it's, it's not... I'm trying to remember the distinction between those two categories, but it's it's one that they're they're keeping an eye on rather than one that's considered an immediate risk. But you know what worries me, Libby, is, is as as things change, we're we're running this great risk of high income countries being heavily vaccinated and heavily secured and kind of airtight, and um, lower income countries being you know increasingly exposed to all kinds of things and um, the pandemic recovering in high income and continuing to search in low income and uh, very, very worrisome. That's right. It's it's interesting that apparently today the government shipped vaccines to consular staff in places uh, where they don't have a lot of vaccine. I'm surprised they didn't do it sooner, frankly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the profile in many countries, and I can't speak for all because that really wouldn't be fair, but, you know, I'm in regular contact with with several countries in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as uh, Peru and Brazil, is when the vaccines do come in, they very quickly, in many cases, go to the most privileged people. And, you know, from an ethical point of view, first of all, you've got this first world thing, you know, going on in which we're heavily protected. And then the people that are getting the protection in lower income countries, in not in all cases, but in many cases, are in fact the most privileged and not necessarily the higher risk at all. So very, very concerning. Well, you know, the, the the class system in, in Latin America, I mean, <laughs> I don't well, think that we have to take responsibility for that. We don't. What we do have to take responsibility of from, you know, I, I feel we have not on a global level dealt with this well at all, uh, you know, globally or nationally as Canadians. And, you know, the fact that Peru is producing variants is not surprising because they're so far behind. And, you know, this is why global efforts really, really matter in this pandemic, because the variants will just keep coming as long as there's that much infection out there. Dr. Vaisman, I'm giving you the last word. So I think uh, we have to anticipate there's going to be news like this about the Lambda variant. It's important that as, you know, in academia and and in journalism and everything, that we try not to sensationalize uh, these kinds of events. We just have to normalize the concept that there's going to be changes and that vaccination is still the best way that we're going to be able to effectively beat COVID. And that's just the way things are going to be for a little while longer until the most of the world is vaccinated. Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases, infection control physician at the University Health Network, and Dr. Kerry Bowman, bioethicist at the U of T. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. 
And not surprisingly, many wanted to weigh in on the city's plans for changing the name of the street honoring the late controversial Scottish politician Henry Dundas, like Ron in Guelph. They're going to spend, so far they've said six, what, billion dollars? 6.3 million. No, it could eventually totally cost that. Not that they've spent so that much so no, far. No, but it could. But here's the other side of it. What about all the merchants, everybody else, the restaurants? Um, are they going to come after the city and sue the city of Toronto for the cost of changing their name? I can see this easily ballooning into $8 billion, $9 billion. Wouldn't the money be better spent that they're going to spend on this to help the homeless, the hungry, the people that disenfranchised? That's money that uh, could be spent on them rather than changing a name that for somebody that never even came to Canada, has no association. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from... Nancy of Richmond Hill on the renaming of Dundas Street. I think it's pathetic. It's ridiculous. It's a waste of money. It's our tax dollars money. Our taxes keep going up and up because there isn't enough. There are people dying in the streets and we are pouring millions into this nonsense. Whoever Dundas Henry was did. He may not have been perfect, but he did his best. Best. Those were the times we have apologized. We deeply regret all the hurt, all the wrongdoing. No one would ever do that again. At that time, they didn't know any better, and they worked towards correcting. Okay? Nothing is ever enough for some people. I wish that they would just open their pocket, and maybe if they had to pay, all those that want the name change, pay up. Because the rest of us do not want to. Our taxes are too high. And that goes for Dundas Street and for all the other streets that they want changed. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca follow us on twitter at fightback libby and call our fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636 i'm bob Comsick for jane brown join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of fightback the best of fightback is produced by jane brown justin eacock and zeve hadi with technical production by kelly robotham Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.